We are in Amos chapter 7, 1 through 9 this morning as we continue in this series. And I wanted to start with a story I read uh, written by a, a theology professor. He and his wife went to the funeral service of a distant relative, a guy they didn't really know well, and drove and drove and drove way out into the country and went to this little, little small town uh, funeral home. And when they sat down, the service started, the guy came out to give the service. It was pretty obvious he was one of these uh, stereotypical uh, fire and brimstone kind of preachers. You don't see them much anymore, but you've probably heard about them from the past. And his opening line was essentially, I've known old Joe here his whole life. I've never known of him giving his heart to Jesus. As far as I know, he never accepted Christ as his savior. So everything I'm going to say today It's too late for old Joe to listen. Too late for old Joe to get right with Jesus, but it's not too late for you. And the rest of his service was about that. It it wasn't a standard eulogy. He didn't talk about Joe's life or his his accomplishments or his qualities. He didn't give tribute to him. He didn't bring comfort to the family. He was just talking about judgment. He was just talking about the certainty of God's wrath. And he was talking about righteousness. And he was telling them over and over again, too late for old Joe, not too late for you. So when the service was over and the professor and his wife got in their car, immediately uh, that that professor was was just angry. And he said, I I can't believe what we just saw. I can't believe the nerve of that guy. I mean, can you believe how insensitive, how rude, how how offensive what he said was? And he, he just goes on and on for quite a while. And his wife just sits there quietly listening. And when he stops to take a breath, she says, yes, I agree with you. It was rude. It was offensive. It was insensitive. It was also 100% true. Now, I can testify, I I know this from experience, from 30 years experience, there are a lot of blessings, guys, to marrying a woman who is both intelligent and wise, okay? And and those blessings are, I I highly recommend the experience, five stars would recommend, but there are some downfalls, and one of them is you never really get to feel smart in front of her right? There's never that moment where you get to say, okay, honey, you just sit there and look pretty. Let me explain to you what the world is like. Let me tell you what the real truth is. That just never seems to happen. That professor, with all his education, with all his titles, he had to admit his wife understood something that he didn't. His wife was right and he was wrong. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's right to preach that kind of a sermon at a funeral. I've never done it that way. I don't anticipate doing it that way. I just think there are better ways to get the gospel message across to people who are grieving. But what he said was true. What he said was biblical. What he said was accurate. And we don't like to hear that today. In fact, you don't hear about the judgment of God often in churches these days. And part of that is because, I mean, quite frankly, this is a cynical thing to say, but it's true. A lot of preachers recognize, you know, I really want my church to grow, but if I keep talking about judgment, it's going to shrink. People don't want to hear that. Uh, you know, the songwriters who write the, the worship music that we, we sing on Sunday mornings that we listen to throughout the week, they're not writing songs about judgment and wrath and hell. Can you even imagine what that would be like? That's not going to sell. But then there's another reason why I think you don't hear about this very often, even though it's all through the scriptures. And that is preachers to lay people alike, we don't really know how to wrap our minds around it because we know from the scriptures that God is gracious, that he's kind, that he's merciful, that he's loving. So how can he also be wrathful and judging and and righteous and, and have this impossible standard? How can those two things both be true? 
So what I want us to do in this message, I'm going to give you the outline in case you're a note taker. I'm going to deal with one of these passages of absolute judgment from Amos. And and then we're going to talk about a couple of misconceptions, clearing up a couple of misconceptions that we have about the anger, the wrath, the judgment of God. And then third, I'm going to give you a, a, a truth that I believe is, is explicitly biblical, that if you understand this, it'll change the way you look at the judgment of God. Those passages in scripture that bother us so much will start to make a whole lot more sense, okay? So Amos chapter, one, ver, ver, chapter 7, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, oh, Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now, we're gonna talk about what all that means, but just to remind you of the background, Amos was a farmer, a fig picker, a shepherd who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah where Jerusalem is. And he traveled up to the north with the call of God on his heart to speak to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, that was much larger, more prosperous, more strong militarily, politically. He showed up there in times of good for Israel to say, this is all an illusion. Things are actually falling apart and you need to change or else destruction is coming. 40 years from now, there will be an invasion from a foreign army that will destroy everything you see before you unless you repent. You still have time to change your destiny. Turn back now. And so, What I want us to talk about now is that whole idea of judgment and wrath. And and the first misconception I want to talk about is this. God's wrath is not like human anger. See, part of the reason I think we don't like these passages is we know our own anger and we know the anger of people around us. And we we think, man, I don't want to think about God being that way. And and the good news is he's not. So so just for an example, if if you go see the movie, uh, The Untouchables, I say go see as if it's in theaters. This is 40 years ago. Uh, But one of my favorites The Untouchables, by the way, based on a TV series, much older, based on the men who took down Al Capone back in the 20s. So if you don't know how Al Capone is, you know, internet's your friend, you can search that out. But the movie starts with an image from uh, overhead of a man in a barber's chair getting a shave while reporters and photographers stand all around asking him questions. And this is Capone most famous criminal in America. They're asking him questions. He's cracking jokes. They're all laughing. It's obvious he's a very charming guy. But suddenly, the the barber cuts too close and cuts his face. And you see Capone touches his cheek and he pulls back his hand and he sees the blood. And then the camera pans up to the barber who's just terrified. And after a second, you see this flash of anger in Capone's eyes and then you see him just wipe the blood off on the, on, the, on the barber's apron and says, it's okay, don't worry about it. 
But the, the scene is meant to show you, okay, this guy can, has, has this outward facade, this outward impression of being very charming, very genial, but if you make him mad, he'll destroy you. And, and later on in the movie, we see that happen to various people who work for him. And so I think a lot of us think that God is that way. And that's what we think of when we think of the anger of God, that yes, he's kind and he's gentle, but if you push him too far, he'll crush you. He'll destroy you. He'll grind you up. He'll throw you into the fire and laugh while you burn. It's on a, on a more humorous level. I, I saw a, a meme the other day that made me laugh. It, it said, right now, Jesus, we don't need you to take the wheel. We need you to pull the car over and beat us in the rear end with a flip-flop, right? And, and it made me laugh because I've, I'm a dad, and I remember those moments when the kids would get on your last nerve, and you'd just lose it. And we laugh, but all of us who've been parents and we've gone through that, we look back and we go, that wasn't right. That, that wasn't good parenting. You know, punishing and anger is never the way. I mean, you never do anything good in that moment. And, and so let me just say that if, if Jesus is really like that, if God is really like that, we're all in a lot of trouble. If, if God is the kind of God who, when you get on his nerves, he just pulls the car over and starts beating you with his flip-flop, Trust me, his flip-flop is bigger than you think. You are, in, you are in a world of hurt. Fortunately, God's wrath is not like our anger in three ways. Let me give you three ways real fast. First of all, God's wrath is never emotional. See, that's, that's our problem is our anger is emotionally driven. Somebody pushes our buttons and we lose it. But God never loses it. God is always the same. His righteousness stays the same. His love stays the same. His mercy stays the same the same. That's good news. See, his wrath is not an emotional reaction to our annoyance or our inconvenience. It's, it's his settled opposition to evil. That's the way the, the theologians put it, and I love that. It's his settled opposition to evil. It's like he's marked out these boundaries, and he said, don't cross this line. If you cross this line, here's what's going to happen. When we cross the line, guess what? It has to happen. Again, going back to human parenting, those of you who've raised kids or those of you who've been kids, which basically is all of us, right? In your best moments as a mom, as a dad, your best moment isn't when you take the kids to Disneyland. Your best moment isn't when you, you know, let them eat ice cream for supper. Your, your best moment is when they're headed in the wrong direction and you take a bold stand against what they're doing, even though it makes them angry with you, even though it hurts their feelings, even though it breaks their heart. You know that it takes courage as a parent because you know that a little heartbreak now is better than serious heartbreak later. So that's the wrath of God. He sets out those boundaries, his settled opposition to evil, and, and, and we bear those consequences. We'll talk more about this next week. Yeah, that makes you want to come back, doesn't it? <laughs> Number two, God's wrath is always fair. I'll just testify for myself. When I get angry, I, I, I tend to blow things out of proportion. Small things become big things. Yeah, that's why when you're angry with your spouse, you say, say things like, you never do this and you always do that, which isn't technically true, but it's true in that moment because you've, you've blown things out of proportion. But God's anger is always fair. People get punished with the punishment they deserve. And here's an interesting thing you'll see in the scriptures. Whenever someone is being judged by God, they know they're being judged by God, and they know why. There's always an explanation, because God's a good father. God doesn't come out of nowhere and just start beating his kids. God doesn't just decide to throw all his kids' toys away. He has a purpose. 
So if you're ever in a situation where you're thinking, I lost my job, I wonder if it's because of something I did. My, my son or daughter is sick right now. I, think, I wonder if I'm being punished. Trust me, if God was punishing you, you'd know it. And you'd know why. Because he's a good father. That's what Amos was there to do. He was there to say, here's why you're going to experience what you're about to experience. God's punishment, his wrath is always fair. And finally, God's wrath is always praiseworthy. I'll just admit, when I get angry, I never end up doing or saying anything that I'm proud of later. Instead, I always end up doing and saying things that I have to backtrack on and apologize for and regret. God never has to do that. Because again, God's character never changes. And you might say, yeah, but why would I praise him for that? That's fine, but why would I, why would I praise God for his wrath and his judgment? Well, let me tell you why. If you had a son or daughter who was, let's say, in the third grade, and there was a kid in your son or daughter's class who should have been in the fifth grade, so he's twice the size of every other kid, and he's mean and sadistic, and he loves to pick on the other kids, in that situation, do you hope that you're kid's teacher is all sweetness and light and can see no wickedness in her students. No. You want Miss Ratchet. You want, you want your, your son or daughter to be with that teacher who is strict, who upholds the rules, who punishes uh, disobedience with an iron fist, because in a classroom like that, as long as she's just, everybody's safe. She doesn't care whether the kids like her or not, but she's going to do what's right. Think about it from an adult perspective. Do you want to live in a country where people who commit crimes can walk away if they've got a good enough attorney, if they're able to buy off the jury, if they, uh, if they can just convince people to feel sorry for them? Do you want to live in that kind of world or a world where people who do wrong are punished, where those who steal, where those who rape, where those who kidnap, where those who murder have to pay the cost? That is a safer world to live in. As Believers in Jesus, we can praise God that even though right now it seems like the wicked tend to get away with what they're doing, nobody in the end ever really gets away with it. That's why we can praise God for his wrath, because we believe in the reality of evil. There's a second misconception. Not only is God's wrath not like human anger, we also need to understand the God of Amos and the God we see in Jesus are the same God. Because this is something that trips Christians up. And I've had, I've had members of, of churches that I've pastored, good people, good Christian people who had great faith in God who will say, I just don't understand. I, the God of the Old Testament seems different than Jesus in the New. And, and I want to tell them, yeah, but, but actually sit and read the whole Bible and you'll see. It's the same God. It's the same God. Our problem is we don't read for ourselves. We let our pastors tell us what the Bible says. We let uh, you know, a celebrity pastor, uh, some that we've never even met, tell us through his podcast or his latest book what God is like. And so we end up believing in a Jesus who's only half accurate. We believe in things like his graciousness. We believe that he loves sinners, that he helps those who are hurting, that he has compassion on those who've fallen, that, that anybody who runs away from him, he, he's like a father with a wayward child. He yearns for their return. All of that's true, but we don't pay any attention to the many, many, many things Jesus said about God's wrath, about coming judgment, about the reality of all these things. And I'll just give you an example. You know, every year we celebrate Palm Sunday. That's two weeks from now, I believe, here at this church. And that's a joyous time. We think about the day Jesus 
rode in to Jerusalem for the last time on that donkey and, and all those kids were shouting, blessed be the name of the Lord and, and, and people were throwing palm branches and, and coats in front of him and, and celebrating as if, he, as if they're acclaiming him the Messiah. But if you read the Bible, you'll see Jesus was the only person not celebrating. Everybody was rejoicing, but Jesus was weeping. Why? Because he knew He knew not only that within five days, those same people would be shouting, crucify, crucify, but more importantly for him, he knew that within 40 years, that city he was entering, the city of the temple, the city that God had given to be the heart of this this world, that would be raised to the ground. That would be destroyed. And you can look this up if you've got the stomach for it, but 67 AD, the Jewish rebellion began as the Jews rebelled against Rome and their authority and the, the war raged until 70 AD when, when Titus and his soldiers encircled the city of Jerusalem and held it under siege for seven months. And within that city, awful, degrading things happened as, as people got more and more desperate, more and more hungry until eventually the wall was breached and the legions poured through. And by this time, Titus had lost control of his men and they just went rampaging through the city and killed tens and tens of thousands of men, women, and children and burned the temple to the ground. It was a horrible day, one of the worst days in the history of humanity, and Jesus knows that's coming. I'm riding into this city that's got 40 years left to turn back, to change its destiny, and it's coming. See, Jesus came to do a lot of the same things that Amos came to do, to say, you've got time to change your destiny, but you have to change now. You have to repent now. So here's Amos. He sees these three visions. Let's get back to what Amos sees. He sees this image, uh, this, this vision of a locust plague. See, in the ancient world, if you saw a big horde, like a cloud of locusts coming, that meant bad news. That meant they're going to eat all your crops. And Amos, in his vision, he sees the plague coming at the worst possible time. It says, after the king's mowings. What that means is when the, when the grain was ripe, when the grain first became ripe, the king had first dibs. He'd go out and harvest all that he needed for himself and his household, and then they'd have to wait for it to grow back, and then the people could harvest. Well, the bugs are coming after the king has taken his part, but before the people have theirs. So Amos says, Lord Jacob is so small. Jacob, reference to Israel. Israel's too small. It can't survive without that harvest of grain. Would you please not let this happen. And God says, I won't. It's, it's done. You're, you're going to be fine. He has this second vision of a fire that consumes the land. A lot of scholars think that's a reference to a drought. Again, would be devastating to the economy, would, would mean people would starve to death. And, and Amos says, Lord, again, please, please don't let this happen. And, and God says, it won't. So here's Amos, like Jesus, interceding for the people. But then the third vision, which we're about to talk about, God says, it's too late, Amos. It's too late. I I can't pass by this people anymore. Their time is up. And that brings me to the point, the the thing I I think we need to understand about God's judgment that will help us understand this better, help us know the heart of God, and that is this. God's judgment is ultimately about His name. God's judgment is for the sake of His name. And I know that's hard for us to understand. It, It makes God sound egotistical. So let me let me explain this in a very different way. So my brother is an architect. He's four years younger than me. Um, he actually, a few years ago, became the head of the architecture firm he'd worked for for years. So now he's the boss man too. Big responsibility. And I remember when my brother went off to college, he first went off to study art. And then in his sophomore year, he's a very talented artist. 
The sophomore year, he switched to architecture because, I don't know, he apparently wanted to make a living or something. Um, so when he switched, I remember him coming home one of the first days uh, he came home and explaining to me and my parents and saying, you know, our professors told us that this is a very stressful profession, that I need to be sure that I want to do this because uh, architects have a higher rate of, of depression and anxiety and even divorce and suicide. So uh, I need to be sure that I'm okay with this. And that was surprising to me because I'd always thought of architecture as this very peaceful profession where all you have, you're just a guy sitting in a room with, with some paper and a pencil and a T-square and you draw things and then people go out and build them. That sounds kind of fun, right? But no, it's not. It's very, very stressful and I'll tell you why. So my brother had a situation a few years ago that he told me about where he was hired to design a building, a, a commercial building in, in a downtown area of a city not far from where we're from. And there was something distinctive about the entrance. I don't remember what it was because I'm not an architect and I don't pay attention to these things, but let's say it was an archway, okay, for just for sake of the story. So my brother designs it just like the customer wanted, and he keeps checking in on the builder as he's putting this together. And one day he goes out there and he sees the work on the entrance is almost completed, and that's when he's able to see it's not straight. It's not. It's just, I mean, somebody like me, uh, an ordinary person like me would go through that doorway every day and not notice, but a person with an eye like my brother's can look at that and go, that's not the way I drew it. That's not straight. And so he went to the contractor and he said, it has to come down. You got to start fresh. And he said, you have no idea how mad that guy was at me. You have no idea the kinds of things he said to me. I thought he was going to hit me. And he said, it, didn't, it wasn't just that moment. I mean, it was for weeks after the whole rest of the job. He was mad at me. All his workers were mad at me. Well, why? Well, not only did my brother tell him you did a bad job, but you have to start over. It means you lose time. You lose money. It means... It means Things aren't going well for you. And, and he said, I, I had to do that. And those are the kinds of conversations he has periodically. Why? Why doesn't he just draw his little drawings and, and just come what may, come what may, right? Well, because his name goes on every one of those buildings. So if somebody shows up at that building and they see designed by Billy Berger and they walk through that archway and they go, well, this doesn't look good. Well, that means in the future when somebody wants something built, they're not going to hire that firm. And that means my brother's family may not be provided for. And that means the families in his firm may not be provided for. He's got a lot riding on his name. Now think about what rides on the name of God. It's not just Jehovah Yahweh. It's not just, it's not just the Almighty God, Heavenly Father, all those things. It's what does it represent? It represents salvation. See, why did God create a people called Israel? When you go back to Genesis 12, here's Abraham, this old man who's never had kids, and God comes to him and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Why? Because through you, all peoples will be blessed. Everybody, Jews and Gentiles, black, white, brown, yellow, you're all going to be blessed through the people that I'm creating. Isaiah comes along hundreds of years later and says, Israel, remember, you're supposed to be a light to the nations. You're supposed to be a, a signal to the world. Look at us. We are living under a God who is good. Come to him and be saved. And I know, I know it's not fun to read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy where the law of Moses is found. But if you'll actually sit and read that and ask yourself, what would it have been like if Israel would have lived this out? Think about it. 
A nation in the ancient world that had no king and no standing army, but never got invaded, that never lost a battle. A a nation where there were no poor people at all because everybody took care of everybody else, where the, the strong defended the weak instead of taking advantage of them, where religion was not corrupt, where, where, Pagan practices like, like uh, child sacrifice and ritual prostitution were never, never found because instead the religion was based on, uh, on the peacefulness and the, and the joy of the Psalms and the, and the sacrifices and the f- festivals. All that was supposed to be the way it was supposed to be. All that was the way God designed it and Israel didn't do it. And here comes Amos and says, don't you see? You're just like every other land. You're no better than the Moabites or the Philistines or the Assyrians or the Egyptians. You're no better than any of them. You've become like everybody else. You're not distinct. So, so, so the plumb line, the image of the plumb line that God shows, the plumb line is, it's a very simple tool. It's basically just a cord with a weight on the end of it. And when you hold it by the end and the weight is on the bottom, it, it, gravity makes sure that it's perfectly straight. And you can hold that up to a wall. A wall may look perfectly straight to the naked eye, but you hold that plumb line up to it and you'll see whether it's off an inch or two or a foot or two. Because why would anyone want to hire a mason that builds a crooked wall? Why would anyone want to hire an architect who designs a crooked archway? Why would anyone want to believe in the God of a crooked people? That's what God is saying here. It all has to come down, Israel. It all has to come down, and I have to start over with you. I'm sorry, but my name is at stake, and if people don't believe in my name, they can't be saved. And that's what God's judgment is about. See, this is where we come in, by the way, because this isn't just about ancient Israel. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 when he, when he came to us and, and said, you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're like a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. He wasn't just trying to be encouraging. He was saying, you have the job of representing me. You have to live lives that are distinct, that are beautiful, that, that show the world that your God is real, that your God is worthy of being followed, that your God is the only God that can save. And can we just admit we've done a lousy job of it down through the centuries? Because what we've done is we've settled for a second, uh, sort of a counterfeit version of that kind of holiness, where we say, well, okay, so I'll be religious, and I'll be moral. So I'll go to church on Sundays, and I won't cuss, and I won't get drunk Saturday night, and yeah, that'll show people that God is holy. So it's as if we've said, Lord, I can't really be holy, so I'll just be weird instead. Nobody's compelled by that. By the way, if you want to, I'm not arguing against religion or morality. I think we should be both. But if that's all you have, then you're really no better than the Pharisees and scribes who were very good at those two things. But when God holds his plumb line up to us, he's not checking to see how often we're in the pew Sunday morning. He's not checking to see how well we keep a few arbitrary rules that we think set us apart from the pagans. He's looking for love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I didn't make up that list. That's Galatians 5.25. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's what God is looking for. So what happens if our church doesn't exhibit those qualities? I think we're already seeing what happens. When you look at the United States of America, at how many people are turning away from faith, how many young adults are walking away from institutional religion, it's 
I think, the result of the fact that we don't measure up to the plumb line. We're not living out a faith that's beautiful and compelling, that shows God in all his glory. Think about Israel. What happened to them? God said through Amos, unless you turn things around in the next 40 years, I'm going to attack the high places, the sanctuaries, and the house of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the king. So here's what happened. A few months after Amos finishes preaching, he goes home. Jeroboam dies. His son, Zechariah, takes the throne. Six months later, he's assassinated. That's the end of the house of Jeroboam right there. So that's the beginning of what Amos prophesied. And then after 40 years, the Assyrians do attack because there is no great repentance. There is no great revival. The Assyrians attack. Samaria is burned to the ground. The sanctuaries are destroyed. The temples are destroyed. The high places are destroyed. And 30,000 Israelites are deported to the north and they're never heard from again. Now, I need to say this because the internet exists and because the internet exists, there's all kinds of foolishness and nonsense. And one of those foolishness and nonsense things is the idea that, oh, well, that's where we get the idea of the, tw- of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Do not tr- fall down that internet rabbit hole. I'm just warning you, okay? There is no such thing as the lost tribes of Israel. Yes, some people were deported, but most of the people remained in the land. Some of them became Samaritans when they intermarried with the pagans. Some of them remained faithful. And after generations, down in Jerusalem, there came a great king named Hezekiah who said, it's my calling to bring the people back to God. And he did something amazing. He said, we're going to celebrate Passover. Nobody's celebrated Passover in Jerusalem for centuries, but we're going to do it. And he sent messengers all throughout the land, even into the pagan territories where the Assyrians were in charge. And he said, if you're a child of God and you want to come home and remember your salvation, I'm inviting you to come back to the temple. Come home to your father. And they did. So what's the message? The message is God never gives up on his people. God never gives up on us. He judges us, but he doesn't destroy us. He loves us enough to hold us accountable and he loves us enough to rebuild us when we fall. And that's the hope in this message. Whatever's going on in your heart, and I have no idea. You might, be, you might be a person who is able to put on a facade of righteousness. You might be able to fool everybody in this room, even yourself. But when God puts that plumb line against your life, does he see a life that is devoted to serving him and living out those qualities? Or does he see something very different? Today's the day. Today's the day of repentance. Today's the day of renewal. The day's the day uh, when we get to experience the grace of God in response to what he said. You still have time to change your destiny. Because here's the thing. Jesus is a lot like Amos. He came to warn us. And he was rejected. But here's where their paths diverge. Jesus was more than just a man. He was the only human being who could stand next to that plumb line and say, I've done it. I've lived the life you all should have lived but then he died the death we all deserve to die. He said, I I will be torn down so you can be rebuilt. That's what the cross is about. That's why it's good news. So what do you say to that? It's too late for the house of Jeroboam, too late for the people of old Israel, but it's not too late for us.